Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Exodus, the 24th chapter. Exodus chapter 24. If you need a Bible, there's some extra ones on the back pews. We have several of them back there. And uh, we've been studying through the book of Exodus. We kind of gave you a summary of things in in our last lesson. And uh, we'll just take it verse by verse here and chapter by chapter, beginning with the 24th chapter. Now, we said when we get to the 25th, we'll start dealing with the... uh, Tabernacle, which we've already studied, so we'll try to brief that more than we have been this other. But the 24th chapter, we see Moses uh, going up on the mount. Verse 1, And he said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye, now I want you to notice this, and worship ye afar off. Remember in the 20th chapter we had get. Uh, we had seen the Ten Commandments given, and then the judgments in chapters 21 on down through 23 of the law. And now God says, Moses, you come up, and uh, Aaron and Nadab and Abihu were sons of Aaron. And he says, and worship, and all the elders of uh, 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship afar off. So before the uh, covenant was ratified the law and all the judgments before even one failure could take place of keeping the law they were still not permitted to draw near they had to worship afar off and it shows us that no one can come into the divine presence of God haphazardly in fact it's typical of the fact that no one can come unto the Father but through the Lord Jesus Christ and then we see in verse 2 and Moses alone look Moses alone shall come near the Lord. Here you have not even the elders of Israel, not Nadab and Abihu, the priestly sons, not even Aaron, Moses' brother, the spokesman for Moses. But it says, And Moses alone shall come near the Lord. But they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. Now what does this mean? Moses was not any better than the rest of them as far as... uh, by nature is concerned, but he is the made an exception to the rule, not because of any personal superiority, but because here God is showing that there is one that uh, has to uh, be the plate in the place of a mediator and a go-between. And Moses was appointed to this place, and it shows us that there is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, and. Men cannot draw near to God except through one person. And here it says, Moses alone shall come near to the Lord. Jesus alone came near to the Lord, and therefore we can come near on the basis of of Christ being near and, and bringing us near and in grace. But under the law, only Moses could do that. It says in verse 3, And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. Will we do? They agreed to keep the Ten Commandments. They agreed to keep all these judgments. We just taught from the 20th on. We just taught the Ten Commandments and the judgments. And the people says, We we want this uh, condition of works. We want this condition of of, uh, being justified by keeping the law. And says, all that God has said, we will do. Little did they know what they were getting themselves into. Because they didn't do anything, he said. 
But they said all that He said we will do. And they broke every commandment. They broke all the law. In fact, uh, when in the 32nd chapter, when we find that Moses finally actually comes down off of the mountain with the Ten Commandments, the people were worshiping an idol. And the very first thing that God said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, and thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. Thou shalt not bow down nor worship them. And before he got down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments, they had broken God's the first laws that applied to God. And here, what did they say? All the words that the Lord has said, we will do. And it just shows how that they hadn't thought it through. You see, before they were under covenant of grace, and now uh, God is putting them under a covenant of works or the law. And even under that covenant of works, He provided sacrifice so they could approach it to God. In verse... Uh, Four. Notice what it says here. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. Now look, he wrote all the words of the Lord and rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. You see, he built an altar because he knew that God had said in the twentieth chapter, if you'll look back there and I'll show you in just a moment, uh, that the only way of approach after he had given them the commandments... He knew that they were going to break them. And he says the only way of approach to God would be through an altar of sacrifice. If you look back in the 20th chapter and verse uh, 24, just after he had given them the Ten Commandments, chapter 20, verse 24, he says, An altar of earth uh, shalt, uh, thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings, thy peace offerings, thy sheep and and thine oxen in all the places where I record my name, I will come unto thee and I will bless thee. How? Because of they kept them keeping the law? No, because they were under, they, because they would approach God by an altar of sacrifice. Because they would bring a sacrifice to atone for their sins and to make peace with God. And to, the whole burnt offering was typical of, of, uh, of, uh, of being consumed by the Lord. And the peace offering, they had to make peace with God through sacrifice. And the blood that was shed was the only thing that could do this. In spite of all their agreements with God to do all the words that He said. So back in... Always hold your place where we're studying. Exodus 24. And notice in verse um, uh, 5 now. And He sent young men of the children of Israel which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. At this time, the reason the young men performed this uh, business of uh, offering sacrifice. Remember that the firstborn was sanctified and set apart to God. And as yet, of yet, Aaron and his sons, the Levitical priesthood, had not yet been set up. And so the firstborn, the ones that were sanctified, set apart to God, were the ones that offered the sacrifices. Now later on, when Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and Aaron, the, the priestly family, and the Levitical priesthood is set up, then this work uh, is given to the uh, the tribe of Levi, to Aaron and his sons, Aaron the priest, and his sons, the, or Aaron the, the main priest, and his sons, the descendants of that priestly family, would function as offering up the sacrifices. In verse 7, <clears throat> it says, uh, <clears throat> well, verse 6 says, And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. This is the blood of the sacrificial animals for the offerings that were sacrificed. He took half of the blood and put it in basins 
and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. So he sanctified the altar. See, when he sprinkled the blood on the altar, that sanctified the altar. And he took the book of the covenant. Look at this. The book of the covenant. And read in the audience of the people. And they said, All that the Lord hath said we will, do, will we do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. Over in the book of Hebrews, turn to the he- book of Hebrews, the ninth chapter. If you don't want to turn there, just listen to the, to the verse and I'll read it for you. It says uh, in verse uh, 18, Hebrews 9:18, Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept, that's what we've been studying, isn't it? In the, in the uh, chapters of Genesis 21 through 23, when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and the scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book, see, all the words he wrote in the book, and all the people. All these precepts, all the law and all the precepts, he had written down. Now, he gets the commandments from God later on, on two tables of stone. But he recorded all of this. And he read it to the people. And they agreed upon this covenant of works. And to be obedient. Didn't we just read that? We'll be obedient. And now, it says he sanctified this, new, this testament, the first testament of the law, was dedicated with blood. He says it was not dedicated without blood. And he tells us here in verse 19, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, the hyssop that he dipped in the blood, and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. And then he goes on to say, Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. That was later on when, he, when the tabernacle was made. And it says in almost, verse 22, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. For New, De- New Testament Christians, the application is brought over to us in this sense. That if Moses sanctified both the, uh, the first testament, was dedicated uh, with blood, and he sanctified the book, the precepts, the law, as well as the people themselves, and everything was ratified or uh, dedicated and sanctified by blood, he says that as far as Jesus is concerned, as far as salvation by grace is concerned, then without the shedding of blood there is no remission. So that for you and I today to claim to have remission of sins, we must accept the redemptive shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only way our sins can be atoned for. That's the only way they can be forgiven. And in the New Testament, the Bible says time and time again, time would fail to quote the Scriptures that tell of forgiveness through the blood of Christ. Ephesians 1.7 says, "...in whom we have redemption through His blood..." The, the forgiveness of sins. Now listen. According to the riches of His grace. Uh, Colossians 1.14 says, In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Uh, Hebrews 9 verse 12 says uh, that... Uh, well, let me see. I started to quote it. 
Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. And then 9.22 that we just read for you in Hebrews chapter 9, it says, without the shedding of blood is no remission. So we have remission of sins through the blood of Christ. I wonder how many people can, uh, you know, you, we, we talk about remission of sins. We talk about having received remission of sins. But do you actually realize what, what you have? That God has made provision for you and I to actually know beyond a shadow of a doubt because of the Word of God and because of the witness of the Word of God that our sins are actually forgiven. They're forgiven. It says, And by Him gave all the prophets witness, through Him gave all the prophets witness, that through this man, whosoever believeth in Him, shall what? Receive remission of sins. Jesus said in Luke 24 that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And so the, the death of Christ, the shed blood of Christ, is the ground of, and guarantee of our forgiveness of sins. Isn't it a wonderful thing that you and I can assuredly say, you know, a lot of people uh, say, well, I don't presume that my sins are all forgiven. I don't presume either. I accept God's Word and know they are. <laughs> you don't presume anything. You believe what God has said. Uh, some of these fellows that go along and just, well, I hope they're forgiven. Well, I don't hope so because if, if I do that, I doubt the, the merit of the blood of Christ. I, I know so because God's Word says through Christ's blood, they are forgiven. And if I've accepted Jesus and His shed blood who made atonement, then I can rest assured. And therefore, I can have peace with God. How could you have peace with God if you went all through this life saying, well, I don't know, I hope my sins are forgiven. Where would, you, would, would you ever have any peace? No, you'd say, well, maybe they're not. Well, then there's no peace, right? You can't have peace on those maybes. You have to know that they're forgiven and believe God's Word and God's record that they're forgiven in order for you to have peace with God. And there's a lot of Christians that just muddle through life saying, well, I hope I'm saved. I hope I can go to heaven. I hope this. Well, you need to come to the place you accept God's Word concerning what God has agreed to do. And if He's agreed to do it, He will do all that He has ever agreed to do. And then your sins are forgiven. And you can go on and tomorrow not worry about it, today not worry about it. Or you say, well, what about when I sin? Well, God's going to chasten you. You keep on. You know, He deals with us as with children. The Bible says, Whom the Lord loveth, He chasteneth and scourgeth every son. Right? And He said, Whom He receiveth. He says, If you be without chastisement, you're not sons, you're bastards. That's what He says in the book of Hebrews. He says, You're illegitimate. You're claiming to be children of God and you're not. And he says, so uh, when you endure chastening, you know God deals with you as with sons. And he says, it's whom the Lord loveth that he chasteneth. The reason God does this is because he loves you. He doesn't do it because he doesn't love you. And when you think of God chastening us, he does it because he wants to show that he wants to correct us and, and cause us to do the right thing. All right, let's get back to this. In Exodus 24, uh, in verse... Uh, Eight, we read, And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made uh, with you concerning all these words. Now then, I want you to notice. After the sacrifice was made, verse 9 says, Then went up, then, that word then is, 
If you have your Bible, you know it's important to look at words in your Bible. Because every word has such a great meaning. The Bible says, every word of God is pure and He is a shield to them that put their trust in Him. The Bible teaches the verbal inspiration of the Word of God. It's verbally inspired. And so when you come across words, don't just treat them lightly. When it says then, the word then means something. Then, when? After these things had happened that I've just told you. Then went up Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and seventy elders of Israel. Why? There had been blood put between them and the standing afar off. And it says, now look, and they saw the God of Israel. Look. And they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. And we're going with that. You know, this is so important, I'm not going to pass over it lightly. You know, the sapphire stone speaks of divine government. The throne of God. The government. You know, the Bible says as far as the government of, uh, of Christ, it says the government shall be upon His shoulders. In Isaiah 9, remember when it's prophesied uh, of Christ? The coming Messiah. It says the government shall rest upon His shoulders. If you want a reference for that, look in Ezekiel 1 verse 26. It says this, And above the firmament, that was over their heads was this is a vision of the glory of God in Ezekiel 1 there are other things in Ezekiel 1 but this is God's glory it says above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone you see and upon the likeness of the throne was the likeness of the appearance of a man above it upon it and you can go and read the rest of it and I saw as the color of amber and as the appearance of fire round about with it, within it from the appearance of his loins even upward and from the appearance of his loins even downward like fire. I saw as it were the appearance of fire and it was had a brightness round about as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud. I love that. You know what that means? A bow in the cloud. When did God put the bow in the cloud? Here you see the throne of God and the presence of God. In the Psalms, the Bible says His throne is set for judgment. And yet in that judgment, there's a bow in the cloud. Like Revelation, what does it mean? It means mercy, the mercy of God. His judgment will be what? For His people mingled with mercy. Remember when we're teaching the book of Revelation? There's a rainbow round about the throne. When Christians are there, there's a rainbow around. It's not the great white throne of judgment in Revelation chapter 20, but it's a rainbow round about the throne. A bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain. So was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face and I heard a voice uh, of one that spake. Heard a voice of one that spake. So you have... Much the same scene that John saw over in the book of Revelation. Alright, we said that there's a sapphire stone that is typical, we just read it, of uh, divine government. And then look, back in our text now, Exodus 24, there's paved work. Notice that. They saw, in verse 10, the God of Israel, and there was under His feet, as it were, a paved work. This means a finished work. A paved work is typical of his finished work. And then it says something else. And as it were, 
the body of heaven in his clearness. Clearness speaks of the clearness of divine counsels. You know, God's word is clear. The clearness of divine counsels. And in Christ, God has brought his counsel so near that we, we can see them in all their clearness. If you want to know what God says and what God means, look at Christ and what, what he is and what he teaches. And in Christ, we can see the clearness of God's counsels. It says, he that uh, is of God speaketh the words of God. Remember, Jesus told those Jews, he says, ye therefore hear them not because you're not of God. He said, he that is of God heareth the words of God too. You wonder why people won't hear the word of God? Jesus says, he that is of God heareth the words of God. You find people running away from the word of God, it just indicates they're not of God. If you run away from God, you're trying to get away from his word. That's what it amounts to. Remember, the Bible says, "Old Jonah uh, ran from the word, of, heard the word of the Lord. God told him to go and preach to the city of Nineveh, and he ran from the presence of the Lord. He couldn't get away from it. Could he? he ran ever so far? Took a ship going down to a certain place, and the ship got in a big storm like this one we just had, and the sailors wanted to do." do something to him they threw him overboard because it's his fault they finally figured it out threw him overboard and a big whale swallowed up Jonah God was still speaking to him and he said out of the belly of the whale or hell cried I and he prayed to God out of the fish's belly the Bible says and you know he prayed this great long prayer and he said something about vanity all things being vanity and finally, he said, salvation is of the Lord. And that old whale couldn't stand that, and he threw him out on dry ground. That's right. He couldn't stand that. When he said, he come down to the bottom line, and you know, the bottom line is salvation is of the Lord. Jonah said, no, I give up. That's all I can do. And when he came there with him, and you know, it says he went into the city, and boy, he made speed to go about doing what God wanted him to do. And then when he got the whole city, that wicked city of Nineveh, to repent, he sat down and got mad at the Lord because he was merciful to him. Can you imagine a Baptist preacher having a great uh, revival and people repenting, a wicked city turning to God, and the Baptist preacher said, I knew you was going to do this. It just makes me mad as I can be. But you know, that's what was wrong with Jonah. You know why Jonah was, was angry? You know why Jonah got angry? He got angry because he told that city, he says, that yet forty days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. And, and they wasn't destroyed because they wanted God to have mercy on them. And God turned around and had mercy on them, see. And he's mad because God didn't destroy them because it put him in a spot. He was more uh, excited about his own uh, pride than he was the God sparing that great city of Nineveh as they repented from their wickedness. But be that as it may, get back to this. It says in verse 10, uh, as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. Now, verse 11, and upon the nobles of the children of Israel, he laid not his hand. Also, they saw God and did eat and drink. Due to the blood, they did eat and drink in his divine presence. This blood represents the blood of Christ. And therefore, they could eat and drink. In verse 12, and the Lord said unto Moses, come up to me in, into the mount and be there. 
I like that, don't you? Didn't I tell you a little bit ago how important words are? Moses had a job to do, but God says, One thing I want you to do, come up to me in the mountain. Remember, he was up there to get the commandments from God. He was up there to receive instruction from God. He said, I want you to come up and be there. That's the main thing. I'll take care of the rest of it. You know, if we'll be where God wants us to be, He's going to take care of the instructions and the rest of it. The main thing for you and I, in fact, over in the, in the uh, book of Kings, when you find this army just worried about what's going to happen when they're facing the enemy, God says, I want you, in the morning when, when the time comes, He says, I want you to be there. He says, the battle is the Lord's. But you just be there. You just be present. And that's all God expects of us, is just to be where He wants us to be, and He'll take care of the situation. He may be giving instruction, He may be doing a multiplied number of things, but if we're present, we can hear what God has to say. And by the way, that has a whole lot to do with being in the house of God. Uh, You remember Thomas? Let me tell you something. After the resurrection, the disciples were assembled together and Thomas was not with them. Oh, doubting Thomas, he said, well, unless I see with my own eyes the nail scars in his hands and the place in his side and put my finger in the place in his hand and in his side and in his feet. says, I'll not believe. I have to see to believe. But you know, Jesus appeared to the disciples before Thomas was there. It says, and Thomas was not with him. Well, he missed out on a blessing. That's what happened. So I'm just saying, if you want in on the blessings, you be there. Be in God's presence and be where He can bless you. And then we find that later on, you know, Thomas was with him. The Lord came and Thomas was with him. And uh, he knew what Thomas was thinking. And he said to Thomas, if you remember what happened to Thomas, he said, Thomas, here I am. Put your finger in the place in my hands and in my side. And what? And be not faithless, but what? But believing. Now listen carefully. But believing. And Thomas said, My Lord and my God. Think of that for a moment. My Lord and my God. And some people say, Well, Thomas had to put his finger in there and check it out. And this side. It didn't say he did that. But it says Jesus showed him those places. And then he exclaimed, My Lord and my God. You read the record. Have you ever heard people say, well, Thomas took his finger and put it in there, and Thomas put, took, put his hand in his side? Well, that's preaching a little beyond what's revealed. Because it doesn't say he did that. I'm sure when Jesus pointed it out, he exclaimed, my Lord and my God. He really realized. And he says, not feeling, but seeing thou hast believed. Right? Isn't this what Jesus said to him? He didn't say feeling thou hast believed. But he says, seeing thou hast believed. Now, follow it on through. He says, blessed are those that have not seen and yet have believed. Isn't that something? Have you ever thought, you and I, we think along uh, this line, oh, if I could have just been here when Jesus was here, it would have been a blessing. I'm, I'm not saying it wouldn't have been a great privilege and we would have been like the two on the road to Emmaus. Our heart burned within us while we heard the words that He spoke. I'm sure that would have been true. But Jesus, as far as believing, He says, blessed are those that have not seen and yet have believed takes just as great a faith to believe on Him who did come and who did die on the cross as it would have in the day that you were standing before Him. You'd have been the same person. You'd have been either willing to accept Him or, or 
uh, quick to reject him if you were there in those days. Because there were people. There's all kinds of people there that did reject him. And the few did accept him. Just like today, you have the few that accept him and the, and the great numbers that reject him, don't you? And you have these things going on. Alright, let's go on down. It says in uh, verse 12, And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me into the mount and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone and a law and commandments. Now look. Which I have written that thou mayest teach them. That thou mayest teach them. This is too good to pass over. You know why? God's Word needs to be taught. God's law needs to be taught. You know, it, it, I was listening to some comments the other night concerning a certain man that uh, was telling about how that our government, we go by that First Amendment, you know, and this church and state division that they, it had nothing to do whatsoever with what is being practiced today. Not not anything whatsoever to do. It, was, it meant that the that the, the state, the government, would not have a state religion so that everybody had to be the same religion. Amen. And that's all it meant. But it didn't mean that we couldn't uh, pray in the schools or pray in public or pray at a ball game or pray in a, a council meeting or, or wherever we wanted to. There was no restrictions on that whatsoever. And they've got this thing reversed. And now they're trying to... See, the Supreme Court can get up there and have prayer before they have their deal, and yet they can rule that you can't do it. Isn't that something? They can get up there and they can have their prayer. And they do at the opening of the session. Did you know they do that? And yet, they refuse to let you do it. And see, they put the restrictions on the people. And God's Word, if we come back to God's Word, and you know, most nations that are... uh, Anywhere near like ours that have, uh, like uh, Canada and say uh, Britain and various other nations and maybe Sweden or or France or various other places in the world that are not dictatorships, so to speak. We'll put it in just kind of a broad category. Uh, most nations that have any sense of laws whatsoever that of right and wrong and of freedoms that we enjoy base their laws upon God's Word. So it says they need to be taught. And I think we've gotten this thing so twisted around. And you and I ought to take our stand for the Word of God regardless. And when, uh, when we, we're to be obedient to the, to the laws of the land, that's true. But when those laws of the land cross God's Word and forbid you to do the things that God's Word gives you the privilege to do, then you're to balk. That's the time you're to quit. If they tell you you can't do so and so that God's Word gives you the privilege to do, just like Peter, you remember he was preaching the book of Acts? And they said, oh, we're going to throw you in prison. Said, we, we said you couldn't preach in this man's name. And Peter says, should I obey God or man? Whether it's right. I want you to judge whether it's right. Is it right for me to obey God or man? He says, we ought to obey God. And so there comes a time and a place that you have to take your stand. You say, well, that's rebellion. Well, it is. How do you think we got in this nation in the first place? Because we wanted those freedoms and those rights. And now we're gradually losing them. What are we going to do? Not, not say anything about it. And I'm not, I'm not for just rising up and causing all kinds of trouble. Don't misunderstand me. But there is a line that's drawn to where you're not to cross it. 
And God's Word needs to be taught. And it says, uh, that thou mayest teach them. In verse 13, And Moses rose up and his uh, minister Joshua. And Moses went up into the mount of God. Well, I'm no Moses, but I was glad to have Randy with me the other day. <laughs> you know, I get to thinking how God pairs people off. Moses was a leader. And as I say, I'm not trying to draw any parallel, but it's good to have an associate, isn't it? And Paul had a Timothy, didn't he? And, you know, when it, 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 God, God puts that in place. And uh, there was Moses, and then Joshua followed along. And uh, you read over in the book of Joshua, when it says when uh, God's servant Moses was dead, it says God came to Joshua and said, go and possess the land. And, you know, it's in God's plan to put leaders together, people together that can serve with one another. And we're not trying to draw a strict parallel to this. We're just saying that all through the Bible, even in the New Testament, when you have the apostles, you have those that were there help help uh, meet and and uh, worked with them and uh, workers together and laborers together. And all through the Bible, you have that situation uh, existing. But it says Moses rose up and the minister... Moses rose up and his minister Joshua and Moses went up into the mount of God and he said unto the elders, uh, Tarry ye here for us until we come again to you. And behold, Aaron and her are here with you. If any man have any matters to do, let him come unto them. So he, he left someone in charge, didn't he? He left uh, Aaron and her in charge. And Moses went up into the mount and a cloud covered the mount. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called, now listen, unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And, and the, uh, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. Now Moses was up there, but the sight of the, the glory of the Lord unto the children of Israel was like a devouring fire. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud. You see, you can do that if God's uh, inviting you. And get him up into the mount. And Moses was in the mount 40 days and 40 nights. 40 in the Bible is what? A time of testing, isn't it? 40 years in the wilderness. 40 days and 40 nights. How long was Jesus in the wilderness temptation? 40 days and 40 nights, right? And he was afterward in hunger. And all through the Bible, you'll find 40 speaks of trial and testing and temptation. And uh, it says, uh, by the way, if, if you think about the 40 days and 40 nights before we turn from uh, to the 25th chapter, I'd like to remind you that when you get down to the 32nd chapter, uh, let, let's go to the 32nd chapter and I'll give you something. You get down to the 32nd chapter... It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, <laughs> they were not saying that and giving him a lot of honor. <laughs> they were saying, that Moses that brought us into this place is where we're having all these problems. That's what they were saying. He said, that Moses, that man, now look, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. They said, why doesn't he come on back? He's forsaken us. He's deserted us. We don't even know. He may be dead by now. 
Can you imagine their imaginations running wild? And they thought, oh, we've got to have some kind of God to worship. So they get Aaron to make the golden calf. Isn't that something? And what had they said? Before Moses went up to that mount to bring back and ratify, bring back this law, to go up in the presence of God, they said, what did they say? All that the Lord has said we will do. We will be obedient. And before he could come back down and bring it back to them, what had they done? You see how people do? You see why the law was not given to save? is to show just how we've sinned and come short of the glory of God. It's to show that we did not keep the law. The Bible says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. You see, no one is justified by the uh, works of the law. Paul says it is evident. He says the just shall live by faith. And the Bible tells us that even though God's law is perfect and true, and, and if we break it, we transgress against God and against His law, yet we find that we are transgressors. That's what it's to show. Uh, Stephen preached to those who were most strictly abide by the law, to the very strictest Jewish sect in the book of Acts, and he says, you receive the law, now listen carefully, by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And have not kept it. Jesus said about the law, and he says, and none of you keep of it. In the book, in the Gospels. So, what is he saying? The very people that were supposed to keep it did not keep it. How much less you and I who are not Jews by nature and who are not of Israel, how much more then have we broken it? How much less have we kept it? Because, you know, Jews and Gentiles, they had the, the advantage of being under the covenant of the law. And it was given directly to them. And by implication, it's given to all men. But on the other hand, they received it, didn't they? Well, you and I have broken it as well. And so we have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's why we need the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's get back to this. Exodus chapter 24. And verse 18 says he was up there 40 days, was in the mount, 40 days and 40 nights. Now, uh, the 25th chapter, let's read. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart. Uh, ye shall take my offerings. And this is the offering which ye shall take of them, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skins dyed red with, and badger skins and shittim wood, all for light, spices for anointing oil and sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod in, and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell, look, among them. He says, according to all that I command, uh, show thee, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. You know, God told Moses, you make it just exactly like I said. According to the pattern that I'm, I'm going to show you up here in the mouth. And Moses begins to receive in this 25th chapter instructions as to not only the materials, but the pattern and the plan uh, of God for constructing the tabernacle. And everything was to be done exactly like God said. Can you imagine Moses saying, well, maybe we ought to do this this way or that way? Not him. 
He said, we're going to make it exactly like God has said. Some people say, well, why are you people so strict and so final about uh, New Testament Christianity? Because Jesus told us to uh, carry out the Great Commission specifically how to do it. That's why we do it. And I believe in the local church. These people that go around here, I belong to the Lord's church. Well, what is the, who's the Lord's church? Where is it located? What block is it on? What street is it on? Well, we know that the church itself uh, in the Bible is, uh, there will be a gathering. It's a called out assembly. But you know, the Lord's church is not going to be assembled till He calls it out of this earth. Meanwhile, it's a local congregation. Now, all the redeemed, ultimately, all the redeemed will ultimately make up that glory church, but we're not yet in glory. We're still on this earth. And so we have to have local churches. And you know, it, it doesn't do well with uh, people to, to me to put down the local church because that's where you learn. That's where you're taught. That's where you receive your blessings. That's where you, you, you have your people when they're hurting to join with one another's hurts. That, <clears throat> excuse me. That's where you have when they're rejoicing to rejoice with one another and bear one another's burdens. And you can't do that without a local assembly. And the Bible teaches very strictly that uh, the church of God, which is at Corinth, the church of God, the church at Ephesus. You know, the last word concerning the local church, Jesus gave it in the book of Revelation. And what was it about? He says, under the church of Ephesus, write. He says, there's a local church over there at Ephesus. I want you to write to them. He says, the church of Smyrna, write. Write a letter to them. And he says, the church of Laodicea and the church of uh, all of them. There's seven of them. All of them pointed out. Local, individual churches. And these were typical of all the other churches. There were hundreds of churches. But he wrote to these local churches. Alright, back here in the book of Exodus, chapter 25, we're beginning to study the materials of the tabernacle. Now, we've already uh, studied the tabernacle. So I'll try to just give you a brief of this. Uh, first of all, gold. Notice these materials. If you'll go over them again. It says gold, in verse 3, gold and silver and brass and blue, and right on down through verse uh, uh, 7, you have the materials. Verses 3 through 7. Look at it. And so gold is, is typical of divinity and glory. There was to be gold used. And silver is typical of redemption. Silver. Remember the silver sockets were to hold the boards of the tabernacle? That's typical of redemption. And brass is judgment. Blue speaks of heavenly color. And Jesus came down from heaven, didn't he? Purple speaks of the royal, is a royal color. And it speaks of royalty. He was offered as, he was offered as a king, right? And scarlet speaks of blood color. He suffered as a savior. And fine linen speaks of purity. He was a spotless man. These colors were used for the curtains and the veils and the robes and the gate all through the tabernacle. The goat's hair speaks of a sin offering. The ram skin dyed red speaks of blood sacrifice. Badger skin, that's a plain, shows he's despised and rejected of men. Uh, Shittim wood or acacia wood, another name, speaks of being cut off. The wood had to be cut down before the boards could be constructed or milled. 
and prepared. And then you have oil for light, speaks of the enlightening of the Holy Spirit. You have anointing oil, speaks of the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And then you have sweet incense that speaks of worship. And the onyx stones, when we find these onyx stones are set in the ephod and in the breastplate is spoken of. Remember when we taught that? These stones and stones to be set. And upon these stones were engraven. Now, first of all, let's, upon this ephod, there, on the shoulder pieces, there were six on either side. Now, listen carefully. And they had these stones had engraven the, the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. So that typically, so that actually the priest, and then we'll get to typically, actually the priest was bearing the names constantly in his priestly garments or robes upon his shoulders. In other words, he was representative as carrying all the, the people of Israel upon his shoulders, represented by their tribes and their families. Okay. Now then, also you find on the breastplate there were four rows of three each. Three to four is twelve. The same that were stones that were set in these rows. Four rows, three in each row. And the names of the children of Israel. What does that mean? Upon his heart. So the priest not only representatively carried the names of the children of Israel upon his shoulders for their strength. He was their strength before God. But they were upon his heart before God. That's why he was a priest. And that's why he could function as such. Now then, Jesus carries us upon his shoulders and upon his heart. He fulfills and of that which is typified in these uh, stones that were set upon the shoulders of the priest and upon the breastplate of the priest. So you, you might say, well, where do I stand before the Lord? Jesus is bearing you upon his shoulders. Remember when he uh, goes out for that lost sheep, he lays it upon his shoulders. That's, that sheep may have been wiggling around and struggling around and would fall off the cliff apart from the Lord, but he puts it on his shoulders. And he has a good grip on it. And he brings it safely home. 